Well, good morning, uh, Providence Church family. I see 931, so we'll get started here. And greetings to all of you uh, watching at home today. Uh, you are missed, and we must ever be mindful in these times that we're one church family, and Philippians has been a great reminder to that effect that we uh, are to be unified around that uh, supreme truth of what God has done in Jesus, that we're devoted to him. I'll begin, as I have in these recent weeks, of uh, reading uh, from uh, one of the, those we supported with the Christmas Initiative. This is David Snyder, who leads Sustainable Medical Missions. It's a longer note, but I'll say this note is hardly sufficient for the level of support from the community at Providence Church for the expanding of the kingdom of God. We look forward to meeting together in person later this year and even welcoming members of the congregation on our trips in the years to come when COVID restrictions lift. So David Snyder, very appreciative so we can think about that day when, when a trip to Africa uh, may be a possibility for those who'd like to go. But well done, church family. Those uh, Christmas initiatives went uh, to various places to support pastors uh, across the world, really. Uh, by way of announcements, firstly, I'll draw your attention to uh, the baptism uh, baptism class, and then baptism's coming up in March. So the baptism class is on the 7th of March. That'll be during this hour. So maybe you would make arrangements to attend the 8th, uh, if, and, then, and then the class during this hour, or come to the class at the 9.30 and then attend the 11. But the baptism class doesn't uh, commit you to anything. It's only a way of, of uh, gathering the information about why Christians are baptized, identifying with Christ in his death, and being raised with him. So baptism class, the seventh baptisms during the service on the 21st, we bring the baptismal fonts out and would love for you to do that, that when you're in Christ and you're converted, that we are baptized into the faith and into the covenant community. Secondly, discover providence. Some who are relatively new, you're thinking about what does this church stand for? What are its distinctives? How do I become more involved? Uh, well, discover providence would be a good place to learn some of that. It's coming up March 14th. And again, just kind of a history and an overview of the church, what we're about as you think about becoming more involved. Thirdly, March workshops that we always uh, want to be a, a thinking church. And so starting next week, uh, Jack Tobik, who's been a faithful member for many years, former chair of our elder board, uh, will lead us through God's attributes. So what's a more important question than that, right? Who is God? Uh, what can we know about him? So make arrangements during the 930 hour throughout those Sundays in March for the workshops, again, God's attributes with Jack Tobik. I highly recommend that to you. Uh, fourthly, uh, the Young Moms Play Date on the 9th. I am so impressed with this group. Uh, Mallory's involved, and uh, the crafts that they've uh, been, been doing have just been incredible. And I really, really love this, uh, this bunch of ladies. So coming up again Tuesday, March 9th, that's here at the church. The preschoolers can play, and the moms can interact uh, the women's play date, and you see the rest of the dates here throughout the spring. But if you're in that group or you know anyone in that group, that's a wonderful, a wonderful time. And finally, Pure Desire Ministry. Remember, Louis Giotto gave his testimony a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're starting this uh, men's conversation about the issue of pornography in our society. So Tuesday evening, that's March 2nd, 7 o'clock. And men, you can just park in the back of the church and walk in the back doors. It'll be the first room on the left. So again, park in the back, come in, 7 o'clock. This Tuesday night, it starts Lewis and others, a conversation about uh, pornography and its dangers. So those things being said, Pastor Ian will call us to worship. Church, good morning. Let's stand together, begin our time 
worship of the king. Let's go before his throne. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, you are kind, you are good, you're merciful, you're eternal, you are righteous, you're holy, beyond comprehension, in your very being is mystery and wonder and majesty. We dwell in the splendor of your holiness. Your ways are unsearchable. Truly, Lord, there is no God like you. Forgive us, Father, for believing that there is, for even believing that we might be those gods that are worthy of your affection and your attention. And Lord, we thank you that you have sent not a way, but you have sent your very son who has taken upon himself the guilt, the shame, the iniquity of us all. As we sing, Lord, help us draw our attention to him who was pierced for our transgressions, whose wounds have healed us. Father, direct our hearts to dwell on the Son deeply. And as we pray always, we pray again, may that be our joy, our contentment, our hope. Help us this morning to cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And may we know that all of those things that make us anxious have been laid upon your Son's cross, been crucified there, buried there, and on the third day, he rose in newness of life, giving us that eternal hope of being with him, the solid rock on which we stand. We pray in his name. Amen. See 
shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I live it if it found. Trust in his right, just now alone. Fallless to stand before the throne. Yeah. Oh, Christ the solid rock, I sit all of the ground. His sinking sand, all of the ground. His sinking sand. Oh, Christ the solid rock, I stand all of the ground. His sinking sand, all of the ground. Is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Well, beloved, let's reflect on Psalm 15 together as we recite the truth of God's word. Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. And I think if we're in our right mind this morning, this psalm that we just confessed together should cause us to fear. Who can dwell in the temple of the Lord? Who can dwell with him eternally? He who is blameless. And brothers and sisters, I confess to you that is not me. All of these qualities, these behaviors that we listed as one who is righteous and will dwell with the Lord forever is not me. I have not been blameless. And so we fear. I think that's a right response. We fear before the Lord our God, the Almighty, the one who is just and holy. And yet our hope this morning is not in my record or your record. Our hope is in the one who fulfills all these attributes, who is righteous, who was blameless, and who now dwells in the holy hill of the Lord. And so let me read what Peter, the eyewitness of Christ, the friend of Christ, the one who watched him day in, day out. Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. And in that is our hope and our joy and our peace and our contentment that our souls have been healed by the very blood of Christ. 
And so we sing in Can It Be, How Can It Be, Lord? This amazing love that would send the God-man, the Son of God, the only righteous to the cross. On my behalf, on your behalf. Sing with joy.
psalmist how can it be thank you lord that we have gained an interest we've gained eternal life in your son's precious blood poured out on our behalf we thank you lord for what this means for our eternal future and even today we have new life in him praise the lord from whom all blessings flow in jesus name amen amen church you can be seated Let's go to God again in prayer. Lord, there is nothing or no one like you. You and you alone are, are holy. You are perfect. You are worthy of all glory we can muster for who you are and what you have done. Today, we specifically thank, thankful and amazed by that. You not only made the heavens and the earth, but you sustained them. You are worthy of glory for the power and wisdom necessary to do so. Thank you for the creation in which all things should point us to you. Nothing happens that is out of your sight or direction. In and for this world, your son is the only path to redemption and salvation. He is worthy of glory for his sacrifice and enabled our relationship with you to be restored. You alone are capable of righteous judgment, so what a gift it is that we can be saved from all the sins that we commit before you. You are worthy of glory for the fact that you are steadfast and faithful. Because of these qualities, we know that when you say that it is by grace that we can be saved, it can be trusted. When you tell us that your grace flows through faith that you give us, we can know that there's nothing better we can base our lives upon. You're worthy of glory because of how great your love is for us. It is an awesome thing that we can bring our requests to you and you hear them. I pray that your will becomes our will in all things. We know that you desire the following, so we ask for your help and direction for the following. That this church, as part of your body, would be constantly maturing in knowledge of you and being transformed into Christ's likeness. We pray that the work you have set before us, such as the, the Pure Desire Ministries, International Student Ministries, Men and Women's Ministries, and our organized partnerships with groups like Cornerstone and Fieldstone, all will be avenues that bring the lost to you. We pray also for the sick among and connected to our congregation. Sin has ravaged the world, and we can all feel it in our bodies. For those facing medical issues, we pray that you show yourself to be, with, to be who you are, the only true source of comfort, peace, and rest. If that comes through healing, we praise you. If that comes through challenges and pain, we pray that we grow closer to you through it, and we praise you for that. Finally, we pray for all of our congregation's leadership. Specifically, we pray for Austin as he comes to help lead us through your word. Please make your words to be his, and that we all end this time closer and more knowledgeable of who you are and what you have done. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. 
so please uh, rise as we read uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 11. So this is Paul writing to the Philippians. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are of the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith then may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Be seated. Thank you, Brother Pete, for a wonderful prayer and scripture reading. Makes you wish there were more Texans in the congregation, doesn't it? Well done. <clears throat> So we're making our way through this wonderful letter of Philippians, a letter that will encourage us much in these times of hardship. And uh, for all the uh, moves that we've made so far, you remember last week we were uh, kind of got the uh, uh, an introduction of sorts to Timothy and Epaphroditus, these, those in the network of Paul, and it feels a bit like Paul's winding it down. Uh, as he reminds the readers uh, once more, should I say the first hearers, of the joy that they have in Christ, and then verse 2 breaks in. Uh, Verse 2 is a considerable pivot, as you'll notice, from the kind of uh, trajectory of the letter, and you want to say, what's happening here? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Clearly now there's a kind of pastoral warning Uh, that's coming, uh, that that those would be threatening that church in Philippi. What is happening here? You see, throughout Paul's ministry, that he's had to contend with um, a a certain opposition, that this opposition would have been those who were ethnically Jewish who then became followers of Jesus. They're ethnically Jewish followers of Jesus. And what they were doing is that they made it their business— to go around to a lot of the Gentile congregations, many of of which Paul uh, founded himself, that they're going around to the Gentile converts, and what they're doing is they're telling them, you need to become ceremonially Jewish in order to be a real follower of Jesus. It's as if they said, you haven't quite arrived yet. You see, if you really want to be a true follower of Jesus, you've got to go and you've got to follow all of the laws of the Old Testament, and all you need to do is kind of, you know, read through the 13 letters that we have from Paul in the New Testament. You'll read passages like Galatians 2 or Romans 3 and 4 or to some extent 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 that Paul is constantly facing this problem as to what to do with the Gentile converts in relation to the Jewish law. 
You know, we have a word that's not in the Bible itself, but uh, those reading the Bible have, have found it a convenient term, and that's, you'll see it in the notes, what, what we call a, a Judaizer. That a Judaizer, again, is the label that we give for those who come in on the Gentile congregations, like Philippi was, and that they would say, well, you know, here are all the laws, and you must do them in order to be right with God. Now, dogs is an interesting phrase. Uh, in our time, we say we really like dogs. No doubt many of you here, you own dogs, and, and you really love them, and you think they're cute, but you say not in the ancient world. See, in the ancient world today, much like if you travel to a third world country, you say dogs are a real nuisance that they're out in the street, that they were scavengers, that they would, you know, b bite your ankles and that kind of thing, that they were considered a dirty animal. And what's happening here is that in the Jewish scriptures, that oftentimes the, the nations could be defined as dogs, these scavengers. And Paul's turning the tables. He's saying that these Judaizers look out for them, these mutilators of the flesh. Why are they called that? Because the test case for all of this is, of course, circumcision. The mark of the ancient covenant, of course, that males carried in their body, that if you were of the people of God, you carried this mark in your body. And so what they're saying is, you Gentile converts, you know, you've not really arrived until you bear this mark in your body. And you say, Paul can't have any of this. That's why this language is so heavy, right? The evildoers, you say, that's pretty heavy language. Why is he so concerned about this? It sounds like a subtlety. I mean, after all, I mean, circumcision, you know, do you, it's, it's in the Bible after all. What's the problem? And the issue for Paul is this, that this is a threat to the gospel itself. You say, why is it a threat to the gospel itself? Because these Judaizers were telling the people in Philippi that it's, it's Jesus plus, right? That, yeah, you've got Jesus, but you also need to do all these other things yourself in order to be approved by God, that it's not Jesus alone. And that's why Paul's so very upset about this time and time again. He says it's really compromising. It's compromising the very heart of the gospel that says that it's all by grace in the gift given in Jesus. And anytime you say it's that, but also all this other stuff, then that's going to be the problem, that it's a threat to the gospel. And you'll notice, too, throughout these sections, as we have here, that I think there's always an element of pride uh, with telling other groups of Christians that you've kind of made it and they haven't. I mean, and, and sometimes you see this today in, in Christian denominations, don't you? They say, well, we've got it together here, but those other Christian denominations don't. There's an element of, well, you think you're Christians, but not really because we're really the in bunch because we do all the law says. Paul says that's not the heart of the matter, that this legalistic, prideful approach to what it means a Christ follower is not where we ought to be, but actually something altogether different. And that's what we'll spend our time looking at. I just want to make two moves today. We'll look firstly at verses 2 to 6 and look at the bad news, what I think is terrifying news. And then verses 7 to 11, which is the wonderful news. And you'll have Christians talk this way. If you've been around somebody who's been a Christian a long time, they'll say something to the, you know, you have to understand the bad news in order to fully appreciate the good news and the difference that Jesus makes. So firstly, verses 2 to six, where Paul would say, look out for the dogs, and uh, what's going on here? Well, first I want to draw your attention, firstly verse six and also verse nine, that what is really at stake is this phrase of righteousness before God. See that word righteousness that occurs three times in our passage? What do we mean by righteousness? To put it very plainly, righteousness is about being accepted by God, about being right with him. 
say, okay, I have a sense. You know, a lot of people do. They say, well, I sense that there's a, a God out there. I think there's a God, and here I am, and I'm going through my life on the west side of Cleveland. Uh, what, what must it mean? How can I be accepted by this God? How can I get right with him? That everybody has an answer for this. And what you'll find is as you ask people, um, you know, 10 out of 10 people, you ask, say, you think there's a God? Yeah, I do. How, how do you think you're, you're made, you're right with him? And they'll invariably say, well, because I'm a good person, because I'm a religious person, because I, I try to do the right things. And this makes all the sense in the world. I think sometimes those of us who are in the faith, we can pick on this, but doesn't this make all the sense in the world? Say, this is why anybody would be religious. I mean, how, how, oh, that's the reason I am religious, is that so I can be right with God, so I can, so I can uh, be accepted by him. That I, I try to be a good person, and I look around the world, and I look at other people, and quite frankly, I'm better than all the others, and uh, that's what it boils down to. I'm a good person. But as soon as we say that, if we just allow our minds to go a bit further, we, we have a lot of problems, don't we? Because you say that, and you say, well, who gets to define the good? So if my being right with God is about being a good person, is good on my terms or somebody else's terms or... Who exactly comes up with the definition of what it means to be good? And it doesn't, you say, again, you look across the, the landscape, you just watch the evening news, and it's very obvious to all of us now, people have different conceptions of what's good. And say, well, if it's about being good, who gets to define the good? But then keep going. You say, how do I know when I've actually arrived at the good? Is there ever a point where I say, okay, I finally, I finally made it, so to speak. I've finally gotten to the place where I need to be to be accepted or right with God. But then that leads to the third question in the notes, and that is, well, what happens when I fall short? When I make a mistake? When I don't even live up to my own definition of the good? And if all this is the case, then how does this view of things not lead to anxiety and slavery? So you see what's happened here, right? You say, I think there's a concept of a God. Well, how do you get right with God? Well, by being a good religious person. Well, who gets to define the good? I guess I do, but how do you know that? What if your good is different from somebody else's good? What happens when you don't even meet your own mark of the good? Doesn't that make you anxious? And if you're constantly trying to arrive at the good, aren't you, you know, enslaved to this system? Say, it's terrible. And then lastly, right, that if it's about me, that if I'm at the center of making myself right with God, how is this not going to lead to my own pride and boasting? Well, look at what a great Christian I am, that I follow all the rules. Can't you see that I have followed all the rules better than all of you have followed the rules? The very kind of prideful legalism that puts us off. So wow, it makes a lot of sense for our minds to say, okay, I think there's a God. How do I get right with the God? By being a good person. That's the default position of all of our minds and hearts. That makes sense at one level. But you ask the next questions, you say, I've got a whole lot of problems here. That if, it, if I put myself at the center of the saving economy, then I'm going to have a lot of anxiety and enslavement. And I can't really answer those questions that I brought up. And that's where Paul is coming from, starting in verse 4. Verse 4 to 6, he gives an insight into his former life, unlike anywhere else in the Bible. And what he says here, he says, if this is the game, if the game is to show our credentials to put God in our debt, right? To say, God, this is all the stuff that I've done in order to make it to you. Now you owe me. If, if that's the game, Paul says, I'm going to win every time. That if the game is to put confidence in the flesh, to accumulate credentials that we would think would make us worthy of God's acceptance, 
Paul's way far ahead. Do you see what he says? That on the eighth day, he was circumcised from verse 5. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Say, why does he name these things? He says circumcised on the eighth day because he's telling everybody, you know, I'm an ethnic Jew. That I'm not a proselyte, you know, I'm not one of these that came in from the outside, but rather, uh, this is deep in my blood. And that since my very birth, that I was a proud Jew. That I did exactly as the law said way back, right, in Genesis 17 and throughout the Torah, that I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of Israel. I'm of the chosen people of God. He names his tribe, doesn't he? The tribe of Benjamin. So we have to go back a bit. You say, what is the tribe of Benjamin? Why is he making a big deal about this? Because you'll remember, say, go back and read in Genesis, say, Benjamin... That son of Jacob was the only son born in the promised land to Jacob's favorite wife or favorite, uh, you know, his, his chosen, right, his beloved Rachel. That Benjamin's this kind of prized child born, the only son born in the promised land. Moreover, Israel's first king, remember Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin. That Benjamin's the tribe that stays faithful when the ten northern tribes uh, commit apostasy. That Benjamin stays faithful along with Judah. In other words, he's saying, I'm not just of the chosen people. I'm not just a proud Jew by birth, obeying all the laws, but actually I'm of the greatest of all tribes a hebrew of hebrews why does he say that see in the first century a lot of jewish people would have been glad to uh, adopt certain greco-roman customs you say we have a word for this hellenism and so some jews were very happy to say you know what i'm going to start speaking greek because greek's the language in which you know business is done and they would forget about their mother tongue not so paul because while i speak greek i for i've not forgotten how to speak hebrew It'd be much today as if you, you know, go to Ireland, uh, you'll see that most, of course, speak English, but you'll have little pockets where they speak the old Gaelic and Celtic languages, you know, hanging on to say, we're kind of the true Irish because we remember our heritage. It's a bit like that to say, yeah, even though the whole world speaks Greek, not me, I still know my Hebrew, that I'm a proud Hebrew. As to the law, he says he's a Pharisee. He says we come to see this group as legalists, but that's not what he's getting at here. What he says is, I was of the camp of the people that took the Bible the most seriously, that I spent large portions of my day memorizing it and, and uh, committing, it to, uh, to committing it to the practice of my life, that I devoted my whole life to following the Hebrew Bible, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, stomping out this movement that he found to be blasphemous to the God of the Bible, as to right living, under the law, you see an amazing phrase in verse 6, blameless. That Paul doesn't say sinless, but he says blameless. 613 laws. Paul says, I was blameless under that system. Yeah, I obeyed all the laws, and when I didn't, I would go through the sacramental, uh, sacrificial system that I did everything the law had for me, that as to the law, I was blameless. In other words, what he's saying is that anything that you could bring to seem to have credit before God, to put God in, in my debt, to say, I'm at the center of this thing, right now he's saying that that is going to not count for much. That any credential we have does not count. So I made up my own. Uh, I say maybe some of you, would, yours would be similar with one or a few details, but this is what I wrote. You know, I'd say this, you know, born to Christian parents, 
a proud American from the greatest state in the Midwest, an Ohioan of Ohioans, as to standing a pastor, as to zeal an antagonist to Marxist naturalists and critical race theorists, as to righteousness, I try to do all the Bible says. You see, all these in and of themselves might not be bad things. You say everything that we would say, well, it's about my parents or my pedigree or that I'm Ohioan or that I'm American. You know, of course, God's going to accept me. Paul says you must not put any confidence in those kinds of things, that that's a prideful superiority. So he brings up this phrase, right, confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, you see what's happening is that, that the default position is to put ourselves at the center, to say I'm in control, that I rely on my genetics, my parents, my birthright, my job, my philosophical alignment, my own personal effort, whatever I can do to kind of, you know, climb my way up to God. Is that the way that it works? But instead, Paul delivers the punch. He says, it, even though I could outdo all the others, it counted for nothing. In fact, he goes so far as to say three times, take a look back at verse 2, to look out. Look out for these people. Three times, look out for those who will tell us that we're at the center of things and that God's not, and that the kind of credentials that we can accumulate actually count for something before the God on high. Look out for this kind of theology. You say, why is it so poisonous? I think because it feeds on our pride, and maybe more so that it feeds on my sense of, of wanting control. You say, what this means is that I can kind of be in, in control, that I'm able to do the kinds of things that will procure God's favor, that I'm at the center. And Paul says, no, uh, you're not. So what's the terrifying bad news, I think, from verses 2 to 6? Very, very terrifying news is that there's nothing I can do to impress God and to put him in my debt. That I'm not in control and that every effort to do so is going to lead to my own anxiety and my own enslavement. That he could say, I'm actually, I'm actually bankrupt before God. Now, gloriously, verse 7 breaks in. You say the great adversative but, right? Verse 7 but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You say, there's the pivot to the good news. The good news is that God has put forth Jesus and that the way to be right with God is not by my own striving in the accumulation of religious credentials, but rather in what Christ has done for me. Now, a lot in this uh, congregation, you know, as our, in our church family, you're going to appreciate very much from verse 7, the kind of overtones that we have are, are economic. That you see all the times you have the words loss or gain or worth, right? Verse 7, loss. Again, 8, loss and worth. Loss, gain, worth. What he's going on, he's going he's gonna to use an economic term, a term from finances to help us see where real value is. It's, again, not that being a Hebrew of Hebrews or a Pharisee in and of itself is a bad thing, but it's about where the value lies. You could put it this way, that when Christ encountered Paul on the Damascus Road, that Jesus did a kind of audit of Paul's life. And what happened in that audit is that Paul was led to believe that he was in forfeiture. That not only did all this stuff that he had, not only was it a no gain, but actually it was a liability. 
that it, he needed to divest his portfolio of all the places he put credence before God. He needed to get rid of all that, right? It's all a loss because I am in forfeiture because that doesn't count in my standing before God. Why? What really matters? Not doing all this stuff for God, but what matters is the Spirit of God and that we glory in Christ Jesus, not putting confidence in our flesh. That knowing Christ, we could say, is the fundamental reality. You see, he says, all this, I consider it a loss for knowing Christ that I might gain him. That if you have Jesus, you have something far more important than all these other things that we can bring to God and say, look at how impressive I am, God. And he would say that any effort in that direction is a hindrance a hindrance and a liability. And you think about that, say, how could all these things actually be a hindrance to my knowing Jesus? And I, I've heard it put this way, which I think is a real danger in our congregation, and that is something to the effect of intelligence being a curse. That we get so proud of our own thinking and our own achievements and all that we have, and that we, again, have had Christian parents or that we've been a member of the church a long time, that all these things, they come up time and time again. You say, can we see why that's a liability? to the pure and humble faith that it's all of Jesus and none of me. You know, I can't tell you how many, if I sat down and thought, thought about it, I, I have way too many friends that I'd care to share that went off, I came, grew up in, in a kind of Bible-believing churches where they um, acknowledge Jesus and they go off to uh, some school to study theology, which I think is going to, you know, I guess get them closer to God. And what ends up happening is they lose their faith. I think of a one friend of mine now at Notre Dame, and he now describes himself as an ex-evangelical. He say, all this great learning that we puff out our chest and say, look at us, God, we've really arrived and stand as an authority over your word. Paul says, be very careful, because you'll find out that you're in forfeiture. That what you need is a humble faith, a humble faith in Jesus without hindrance. Now, verse 9 kind of breaks in and makes more sense to us, doesn't it? At verse 9, that he may gain Christ, Paul says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Can you see that in that verse there are two different righteousnesses? One's actually not a righteousness at all. He says, on the one hand, there's a righteousness that's according to my flesh. That as I've described, that I'm trying to claw my way and impress God, that's a righteousness from the law. He says, that is no righteousness at all. But rather, it's the righteousness in this very important preposition. You say, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 is about as important a verse as you can come to for understanding Paul's theology. Verse 9 is very important because what's that preposition that he uses? That it's a righteousness from God. That it comes from him to us as a gift. That it doesn't work by me going up to him, but on his kindness coming down to me. And I want us all, again, in this congregation to understand this very clearly because we, we face this all the time. What is it about your faith, your faith in Jesus, that's so different from all the other world religions? I mean, you have all these millions and millions of people following all these, you know, aren't we just all climbing up the different side of the mountain? You say, we, we must stop right there and have in mind Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. You say, all the other religions, including these Judaizers, right? These Judaizers have the, the view that you, you try to do enough good stuff you try to be religious. 
You do all the things that you think uh, will, will, will impress God enough. And if you do that, you might be found right with God at the end of the day. But it's going to start with you, and it's going to end with, with, with uh, what God may or may not do with you on the end day. Say, gospel's very clear. Say, there's nothing we can do to impress God. It will never work that way. You'll be anxious and enslaved. You've got no solution to what happens when you make a mistake, and we failed. We have failed then. If that's our view, we fail to understand the gospel of Jesus. Because what's the difference? We're never going to be good enough, but when God regenerates our hearts, right, when he comes in with the word from the outside and quickens our hearts that we are found righteous in Jesus, and as a result of being made anew in him, that we then go on to bear the fruits of what it means to live in him. Can you see the fundamental difference? All the other world religions, right? The default position, you got to be a good person. You got to be a religious person. You got to get your way up to God. Say, no, you can't play that game. Rather, what we must see is that God's put forth Jesus as a gift. There's a righteousness, right? What Luther called the alien righteousness from the outside that regenerates my heart. And as a result of that, that I commit my life to living for the one who bought me back. That there is a righteousness from God. And if you're thinking, can it be? See, that's why we sang that wonderful song, I think, Wesley's Finest. And can it be that I should gain an interest in this Savior's blood? That he died for me and came for me. Tis mercy all, immense and free, because, oh my God, it found out me. We want to be very clear as to what it is that we believe. Not our saying, God, look at our credentials. Aren't we good people? Don't we have great zeal for you? Now we know we might be right with you at the end, but rather to come in humble faith, God, there's nothing I can bring that would possibly impress you. But rather I see that you've put forth Jesus and that I can trust in him. And then his righteousness comes to me as a gift. That's what it's about. And all this to the end, you say this isn't just lofty, you know, theologizing, but you'll say the great cry in Paul's heart is that he knows Christ, that I may know him. See, I'm embarrassed to say that this is not really my life's cry, is it, for any of you? Say, well, I'd love to impress people. I'd love to make more money. I'd rather get another credential. I'd rather, you know, whatever it is. But certainly my life cry isn't that I want to know Christ more. But here it is, Paul, with all that he had to say, I want to know him more, that I want to be found more and more in Jesus to experience who he is, right? To know him in his sufferings even and in his resurrection, to know him and who he was to be found in him. That's his great life quest. And don't you love that the sufferings and the resurrection are put in the same sentence? You say you don't have the theology of glory without the theology of the cross, that to know Jesus in the costliness of following him, but also in the power that he's raised. See, I know that none of us are suffering as these Philippians, or even as Paul did, or we, we probably won't, but we know, I hope, a bit, as remember we started back in chapter 1, that all of us will know a little bit of the costliness of following Jesus. I mean, let's face it today. I mean, who really wants to, you know, thinks that it's going to go well when we tell the, the world, you know, my great ambition in life is to know Christ. So you're probably going to be mocked. Following Jesus is probably going to cost you. It's not pleasant when we have to allow him to correct our lives and to keep us in line. Say, all that's a form of saying, Jesus, I, I, I want to be in you. I want to know what it's like to, to, to be others-minded and to be thinking of you and to experience the costliness of following you. I want to know Christ and his sufferings, but also to know him 
that he's been raised and that all those hardships, right, are one day going to be victory in the end, that we're going to be raised with him. Now, this old drama, as I've, I've tried to say since I came here, that this dying and rising of Jesus is a historical event that we, we always must understand it that way. We will in a few weeks at Easter, right, that it is something that was completed and verifiable in the history of the world. But for the Christ follower here, look at verse 10, that it becomes the very pattern of your life. That in the hardships and the disappointments and the costly things in life, right, that I, I, I understand that if I'm in Christ, I, I give those over to him on the cross. That I'm suffering, that I've, I've died with him, I've identified with him, right? I've dying to the world and to self, and I've allowed him to raise it up. So think of the things even this week. I talked to many, was on a couple college campuses, you know, just talking to young people, and they say, well, you know, I've faced a lot of rejection lately. I applied for a job, and they told me, no, I wasn't good enough. And I applied for an academic program, and they said, no, I wasn't good enough. And, you know, I asked somebody out on a date, and they said, no, I, you know, they weren't impressed. Say, all the, what, what do I do with something like this? We've all faced rejection, but you say, if you're a Christian, what you might do is to say, you know what, that really hurt, but I follow a Savior who actually was, was one who was reviled by the world, that he, he was not popular and accepted, and, and I've died with him. And I can hand over that pain onto the cross, that, that, that wounding and that rejection, that I give that over to Jesus, trusting that my life in him, that that's going to be raised to victory and made whole. That the very drama of dying and rising, yes, historical event, but it's the pattern of our lives as to how we navigate the hard things that we face. To suffer with Jesus, to live lives of self-denial, to be others-minded, say all that's done in him, knowing that we'll have victory on the last day. And as I've said, a, a saying on this matter that's been helpful to me, a friend gave it to me years ago, maybe I've said it here before, but um, I was complaining about something mundane, as I, I can do from time to time, and I must have been going on, I forget what the matter was, but I was complaining and I was a bit bitter until finally my friend, he said, Austin, dead men don't care about that. And I said, I knew what he meant. That here I am, I'm all frazzled and worked up about these mundane, earthly affairs. But wait a second, I'm in Christ. That my life is in him. That I've died with him and he raises to victory those parts of me which are sinful and suffering and wounded and on and on it goes. So what I'm trying to say here is that this passage, in all of its rhetoric, you say here's one where you say Paul soars to such rhetorical heights that anything the pastor can say in 25 minutes inevitably will bring the text down. But what I said is first, there's there's terrifying news for everybody in the room, and that is that there's no amount of religious credentials that we could possibly bring before God to say, look at me, now can I be accepted? That I must come. The terrible news, as the title of the sermon is, I must come to the end of myself that I can't do it, that I'm a weak sinner. But enter verse 7, that anything I could do, I consider it loss. In fact, it's rubbish. It belongs on the dung heap. That's what the word means. That's what it is compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and experiencing his grace and the righteousness from the outside that says that I'm right before God. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian today, Maybe you believe in God and you, you answer how most people would if they were you would have asked you before the service, how do you get right with God? By being a good person. I hope something in here, you say, well, is that really the game that we want to play with God? That I, that I want to try to be as good as he, he'll have me? You say, well, we're not going to make it. 
but rather to see there's a different approach that's distinct in Jesus, right? There's a righteousness from the outside that you can trust him and you can experience grace. You ever notice when somebody's giving their testimony, uh, when somebody's not a Christian, they become a Christian, they tell their story, how often that they'll t- describe their former life as they would just say, I'm so, I was so tired. I was just so tired. I've often played around with that phrase. Say, it must be very tiring, right, to try to always be doing the right thing in order to, uh, you know, a, 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 be approved by God and to say to try to just uh, show everybody else that you're a good put together person when in fact you're not a good put together say that must be very tiring say what a refreshing breath this must be to say that whole effort is in vain but to accept Jesus and to agree with him about our sins and to realize it's all of him but none of us and I hope that this challenges you to think differently about this Lord Jesus and for us Christians To me, the challenge of this is always the daily fact of coming to the end of myself and to make it my life quest to know Christ. And I know I've not really arrived. I can't ever, I hope that I do, but to say that really what I want to do more than anything else is to know Jesus, to know him in his sufferings, to share in his sufferings, in the power of his resurrection, in that great anticipation of being with him in the end. That that's our cry as a church, to know him and to be like him, to experience him, to be changed by him, and to proclaim him until our day comes. So I'll invite the team up as I pray. Lord, this passage is, um, uh, it it rattles us. I know it it, it rattled me in a way to say we can have all the right boxes ticked. I mean, it's the same as you can kind of get all A's in life and still flunk life. Uh, That we can tick all the religious boxes and to say, well, we've had Christian a Christian heritage and good church attendance and after all we're good Midwesterners and we try to obey the Bible and all this would make us right before you and help us to see that, that that's, not, that's not the way it is and in fact that's a very tiring and, and a game that will lead to all sorts of um, problems and help us to see alternatively that there's a righteousness from you that comes as a gift in Jesus And that when you change our hearts with this truth, that we then are spurred on to living for you. And I pray that again, in this lifelong quest, that we would say we want to know Jesus, to experience his sufferings, and to share in the power of the resurrection. May we be more and more in that mindset. In Christ's name, amen. Well, church, let's stand together and respond to the Lord's word.
reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea and I am safe on this solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls strength will help me scale these rocks. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord, our 
grace of God has reached for me. What a truth. And from Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and in which we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
what a hope and a promise we have that it's all of God and none of us. Now we live in light of that. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, comes now and forevermore. Amen. Let's go in peace.